Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15, and then we're going to skip forward a little bit, and then we're going to read from chapter 3, verse 1 through 17. Again, Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6. And before I read, let's, uh, let's pray together and again ask the Spirit of God uh, to illuminate our hearts and our minds and our eyes uh, to hear the wonderful things that he has for us in his word. So let's pray. Indeed, gracious Heavenly Father, We'd ask now that you would um, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. We know that your word has, is breathed out by God. It is inspired by the Spirit of God. And therefore, as your word tells us, um, we need to have his Spirit to help us to truly understand the depth of the words here for us. And so we would ask that you illuminate our eyes, that you open up our eyes, you open up our ears to see and to hear what is in your word this morning on this uh, Resurrection Sunday. So speak to us this morning. We ask your blessing upon the reading of the word in our meditation upon it and that you would apply it to our lives because we know that your word is living and active, though written millennia ago, it is still powerful and true for us today. And so we'd ask that you would add a blessing to this in our time together. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, where the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
this, he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Well, it is Resurrection Sunday, and, and I alluded to this before. In a sense, every single Sunday is uh, Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we gather together as God's people. The church has done throughout history since, since the resurrection of Christ. They have gathered on that first day of the week, marking this resurrection of their Savior, Jesus Christ, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why it is such an important day. The resurrection is crucial, I think. This Resurrection Sunday is crucial for helping us to know and understand what being a Christian actually is. What does being a Christian really mean? Do you consider yourself a believer? If you had to stand before a crowd of people and proudly profess, yes, I'm a Christian, when put to it. Do you take the name of Christ upon yourself to identify yourself publicly that way? 
If you do, and if somebody then came to you and said, well, then what fundamentally does it mean to be a Christian? Don't imagine it would happen very often in this culture. I think immediately a lot of people would uh, have a caricature of, of Christians in their mind and would have a general understanding about what Christians believe. But just in the outside chance, somebody with an inquisitive mind wanted to come to you and say, well, then can you fundamentally tell me what does it mean to be a Christian? What might you say? Well, what I would say, if pressed in a situation like this, and I think uh, can, be, uh, can be demonstrated throughout the scripture, I mean, there's a lot of ways of defining a Christian. But let me see if I could boil down the essential nature of what Christianity is. This is what I would say. It is that Christian, being a Christian is essentially being united with Christ by faith. Being united with Christ. This is what uh, theologians and scholars refer to as union with Christ or with Christ. There are dozens and dozens of references in the New Testament that depict Christians as being in Christ or in him or with him. At a fundamental level. So if there would be a theme for this morning, and you could follow along in your handout, if there's a theme for this morning, the theme is, what we're going to explore, is union with Christ. Indeed, look at a couple of quotes here. John Owen, famous Puritan scholar, when speaking about the centrality of a believer's union with Christ to the Christian faith, he says it is, quote, the principle and measure of of all spiritual enjoyments and expectations. His colleague, Thomas Goodwin, put it this way, being in Christ, again referring to the union with Christ, being in Christ and united to him is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. A little bit closer to our time, John Murray says this, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And it is not simply a, phrase, a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of it. So this morning I want to look at the union with Christ as we have seen in our reading in Colossians 2 and chapter 3 which is a, a, an emphasis of Paul in these two chapters that we just read. And there's three things that I want us to notice about this concept, this theme this morning of union with Christ. And this is the first one, that we are united, that believers, Christians, are united with Christ in his death. That you are united with Christ in his death. Well, let's think first here about the death of Christ himself. Which, of course, we mark on this weekend. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. You can see this in some of the, the gospel accounts. Let me just survey a little bit here of Luke's account, Luke chapter 23. And you could follow along if you would like. But let's be reminded about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And they led him away, 
And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. This is verse 26 of Luke chapter 23. Who was coming in from the country and they laid upon him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Skip to verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ or the Messiah of God, his chosen one, let him save himself. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you're that king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. By the way, can you, I mean, can you imagine being hanging on a cross and your main priority is to mock the guy next to you? But the other rebuffed him, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light fa failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken a place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. It goes on to say that they, because it was the Sabbath, Passover, the day of preparation, and they couldn't have dead bodies hanging on the trees, that they expedited this process. They went to break the legs of the criminals, which would speed up this process. But they, had seen, they saw that Jesus had already given up his spirit. They took the men down, they wrapped Jesus up, and they put him in a tomb. The death of Jesus Christ. It's not pretty. In fact, I think it might be helpful to think about the brutality of what had taken place. Crucifixion was the most brutal, most inhumane form of torture and death ever devised by the mind of man. It was designed to be prolonged for days upon end, even a week or more, by design. Had it not been required that they needed to expedite this one, they could have been on there for a week to two weeks. 
And I still find it truly amazing to think that in all of the course of human history, with all of the forms of death penalty that have existed throughout the ages, that Jesus chose to come and to experience the worst one ever devised. And why did he do that? He perpetrated no crime. He committed no sin. Not so for us. We have sinned. We have committed crimes against God's holiness. Even if we are guiltless of crimes in the human level, we are all guilty of God's holiness. But he died in our place. He suffered our punishment. And through faith in him and his atoning work on the cross, we can be forgiven of our guilt. As our passage said in Colossians chapter 2, that he, because of his work, that we are forgiven all of our trespasses. Chapter 2, verse 12. That he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That legal debt that basically is a, a catalog of all of the ways in which we have sinned against him. The Apostle Paul says it's, that thing was nailed to the cross. So that's the death of Christ. So it's helpful when we think about this doctrine of union with Christ, and it speaks of being united with Christ. We are united with him in his death. So it's helpful to think of his death. But where is the connection to us in our death? The scriptures don't leave the work of Jesus Christ as just some sort of transaction that he has done on our behalf and that we're uh, beneficiaries of it goes way beyond that indeed if you are a Christian you have died with Christ the scriptures repeatedly describe it this way notice verse 3 of chapter 3 for you have died you have died with Christ or Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 and you having been buried with him in baptism or Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him into death. Which, by the way, this is why this ordinance or sacrament of baptism is so vital for us. God tangibly gives us things in this world that communicate grace to us when we receive them in faith. You hear me say this often when it comes to the Lord's Supper. That it's not just a memorial. We're not just remembering the work of Christ. That he's actually given this to us as a means to communicate grace to us. Not in a Catholic sense like this is his actual body and blood. I didn't say some kind of prayer incantation and turned it into something else. But Christ does promise when he was with his disciples that he is there with them when they take it. Notice how he doesn't leave this just in the kind of mystical realm. He gives us real world things. So too with baptism. As this is kind of the ongoing 
sign of the covenant with Christ, baptism is the initial one. And it is used frequently in the scriptures to remind believers that they are united with him. When you are baptized, you are united with Christ. That was the thing that, uh, the means of grace he's given us. More on that in a little bit. So what are the implications or the consequences here of being united with Christ in his death? Colossians, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 5 says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This idea about being united to Jesus Christ in his death is, the implication of it is, well then, as you live in this world, you live differently. Because you have died with Christ, therefore you have died to your former way of living. So let's do some diagnostics here. The Apostle Paul here in Colossians chapter 3 uh, gives a bunch of things that kind of characterize um, what being united with Christ in his death should look like. You should be putting to death certain things. Notice chapter 3 verse 5. God's word tells us that if we are united to Christ in his death, then we will be dying to and dead to some things. We will be dead to patterns of sin, patterns of disobedience, patterns of uh, love for and craving after earthly things. So our question as we read this, are you dead to these things? Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. And again, this is that umbrella term. It's a catch-all term for anything outside of the sexual relations between a husband and wife in a marital bond. Or impurity. Passion. Evil desire. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul continues with the implication that Christ died, you are united with him by faith, therefore you have died to these things. Notice what he says in verse 7. In these things you too once walked when you were living in them, i.e. before you were a Christian. But now, in other words, now that you are a Christian and united to Christ by faith, he says, you must put them all away. And then he resumes the list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Are these things still alive in you? How bad are these things? Well, he tells you, verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So the question is, then, are, are you in Christ? Are you united to him? Being in Christ will manifest uh, in these sorts of changes. Notice again, verse 9. Do not lie to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So this is the implication or the consequence of being united with Christ by faith, united with him in his death, is that you have died too. And the Apostle Paul is saying, since you have died, then these are the types of things that you would be dead to. 
But here's the second one. That we're not just united with Christ in his death. We are united with Christ in his resurrection. And it is Christ's resurrection that we celebrate this morning. Again, back to Luke's gospel. Luke 24, we get the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But then when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words returning from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and the rest. You know the story? They go and tell the disciples and the disciples are just marveling in disbelief. They think the women are just doing crazy talk. And then uh, get, eventually Peter and John both run to the tomb. And Peter's running first and John runs past him. We saw that in John's gospel. I think that's great that John includes that. And by the way, I was faster. But he wasn't there. Jesus was risen. Jesus really was indeed crucified, dead, and buried, and raised to life again. Hallelujah, Hallelujah indeed. And even though that, that's, uh, that doctrine, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the actual physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, is doubted and uh, aligned, and there's all sorts of theories out there, like we, I think we covered this before, like the swoon theory. That Jesus, well, he didn't really die. He was only mostly dead, like, you know, <laughs> Princess Bride or something. Or it was magic. They, it, there was just a hallucination. Of course, that, but Jesus appeared to, to hundreds of people after that time. Or the ma mistaken identity theory. That it was somebody else that was just walking around saying that he was Jesus, impersonating Jesus. But Jesus showed Thomas' wounds. How do you impersonate that? All the disciples had lived with Jesus for three years. And as a matter of fact, how can an impersonator keep that up for 40 days? It wasn't some sort of mystical, spiritual body. You know, he just kind of showed up there in like a glowing, you know, manifestation like Obi-Wan, you know, appearing to Luke. It wasn't like that. There was no malfeasance. The disciples didn't steal the body and just claimed he was dead. It says there were an entire station of Roman guards around the tomb who were scared off by the earthquake. And it's not a metaphorical resurrection either. This is probably the most common today. That, well, it didn't matter if Jesus actually was raised to life. The story of it has power for us. No. Apostle Paul says physical, real, actual bodily resurrection from the dead. And if that didn't happen, then our faith is in vain and we're still dead in our sins. So this is fundamental to uh, the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in the earliest creeds, 
the earliest creeds of the church, the Apostle Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. And in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. So what joy, what joy that the disciples had in running to the tomb, seeing that it was empty, wondering what was going on, and then seeing Jesus themselves. Christ is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. But likewise, similar to Christ's death, and our death being connected to it, united with him, we are united with him in a resurrection, too. If you are a Christian, you have been and will be raised with Christ. This is another emphasis in the New Testament letters, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, wasn't just some sort of transactional thing that was credited to you, that you actually, through faith in him, were also raised to new life. And again, notice the connection to baptism. It's important here. Colossians chapter 2, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, there's the first one, Christ's resurrection. He was raised from the dead. And the apostle Paul immediately connects our resurrection through faith in him, in which you also were raised. It says a similar thing in Romans chapter 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Isn't that amazing? Look at back at Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. It's, it's in several places in this passage. Verse 13 of chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Indeed, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, and then he's going on to the implications of it. And then verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I love it how throughout the New Testament it connects the resurrection of Jesus Christ, real, actual, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as kind of the first fruits of what we will receive. And there's a sense in which we already have been raised. You notice that it's used in the past tense in all of these verses that I've read. In other passages, it's speaking about the resurrection we will have on that day when he comes back. There's a present tense sense and there's a future sense to it. But in either way, notice the connection. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, what happened to Jesus has happened to you. And will happen to you. Now again, what are the implications of this then? What are the, we did some diagnostic with the positives of the things that you have to put to death if you are united with Christ in his death. And there he speaks of it in two ways. It speaks of it kind of using like life and death. You know, you have to put to death those things because you're dead. And then he also used this kind of uh, changing of garments kind of picture. You know, you have to put them off. And then now he goes to tell them that these are the things you need to uh, make alive in you and by the Spirit of God. And then to put on. Notice this in chapter 3, verse 9. Seeing, has, seeing that you have put off the old self 
with its practices and have put on the new self. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You become a new person. You are born again. You are born from above. And to those who have experienced that, those who have had that that realization that you were a sinner and that God saved you, that you were dead and couldn't respond to him and that God saved you and all of a sudden you see things differently. The whole world you see differently. Your whole life is different. Complete reorientation. And the only way to describe it is I was dead and I've been made alive again. Hallelujah. But he says, notice what he says here in verse, in verse 9 of chapter 3. You put off the old self, verse 10, and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So you have this new self, but then it's also, there's a picture of this is constantly being renewed. It's not perfect. Take some work. As a matter of fact, that's why he gives these instructions to them. He, he's saying, if it was perfect and complete when it happened the first time, then you would be done, and I wouldn't need to give you any instructions here. But I have to tell you, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here are some things that I just want to encourage you to do. And again, it's based on the fact that you are united with Christ in his death, and you are united with Christ in his resurrection. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul here is giving the traits of those who are united with Christ. This is what it will look like. This is what a new self looks like. This is what putting on the new clothes of Christian looks like. Those who have died with Christ and have been raised with him. And so just for diagnostic purposes for all of us this morning, how are you in these? How are you in these since last Easter? Are you more tenderhearted? Are you more kind, more humble, more meek, more patient, more forbearing, more forgiving, more loving? Again, the Apostle Paul is saying, you don't get all of these perfectly and completely when you come to Christ and you're united with him. You need to be reminded of these things. He's reminding them that, and I'm guessing he's probably writing things like this because he's heard from some feedback from the congregation that maybe they're, they're lacking in some of these things. It happens. And so he has to write to them and to remind them, just to remind you, you know Christ is risen and you have been raised with him? Oh, that he would do that work in us to continue, to remind us that we are raised with Christ. And here's just a side note here, that being united to Christ in his death and his life means, it means putting off the old and putting on the new. It's putting to death the earthly things and it's putting 
on the resurrected life. And you need the church to do this. You know, since the pandemic, pandemic, <laughs> you don't, you've probably seen many of the statistics. Here's a couple of them. 68% of regular attenders in churches pre-2020 quit going to services after. So a third, post-2020. Take a body of church attenders. This is probably all across the spectrum, but a body of church attenders, 2020 hits, three months lockdown or more in some places, literally boom, a, scooped a third of them out. That's what's happened. The percentage of people who never attend church, so this is kind of looking at it from the other way, who never attended church was 25% before the pandemic. It jumped to 33 after in one year, 25 to 33. I'll say this, of all of the bad consequences of 2020, and there are many, loss of trust in leaders and authority, loss of trust in medical experts, loss of trust in the media, the worst the, what I think is the worst, and all of those are bad. The worst was the spread of thinking among Christians is I could do church here at home on a screen. No, you can't. Look at verses 15 through 17. He's not changing subjects here. He's going right from this. Hey, you are, you are dead with Christ and you have made, been made alive with Christ through union with him. You are united with Christ. You claim the name Christian. You bear the name Christian. And so there's going to be a change in your life. And I want to encourage you of that, remind you that you are raised with Christ. And here's some of the mechanisms of how that will happen. Verses 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your, plural, hearts, to which indeed you, plural, were called in one body. That's the church. Transitions right from your connection to life and union with Christ in his death and union with Christ in his resurrection. And immediately the mechanism by which that is reinforced and encouraged is in the body. And be thankful what happens in the body and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The preaching of the word. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What else happens? Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sing, worship, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Okay? You want to know what reinforces the idea that you are dead in Christ and you have been raised with Christ? It's gathering with other people who are dead in Christ and are raised with Christ. To gather with other people, to hear the preaching of the word, to gather with other people for the singing and for prayer and for the Lord's Supper, for those means of grace that God has given us, in which his grace comes to us. So we are united with Christ in his death, we are united with Christ in his resurrection, and then lastly and briefly, we are united with Christ in his glorification. Notice verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's a reference to the glorification of Jesus Christ. 
So 40 days he walked the world, walked on earth after his resurrection, and then he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 1 records the ascension of Christ into, into the heavenly places, and the disciples are all there looking up at the, the clouds as he disappears up into the clouds. And then the angels are standing there, like, looking. You know, they're up there looking, and the angel comes up next to them. What are you guys looking at? He's gone. Get to work. He's going to come back that way, by the way. But in the meantime, go back to your house. Just wait. The Holy Spirit's going to come in a few days. That's where Christ is. He didn't vanish. He didn't disappear. He is... He is at the right hand of the Father. Dozens of times it references this in the Scripture. Hebrews chapter, chapter 1. I love this passage. That Jesus, the Son of God, has been appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's doing that right now from heaven. And Jesus says this. In his prayer to the Father in John 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And listen to this. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. If it stopped there, you would be kind of like, okay, that's wonderful. But with this, this last line, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus comes to earth he glorifies the Father, and now he's returning to his rightful presence of all power and authority at the right hand of the Father. In a sense, Jesus did glorify God on earth, was glorified through his obedience. He was glorified to his disciples. He was glorified in performing in the miracles. He was glorified on the cross. But strictly speaking, this glorification is often associated with his resurrection and his ascension and his session being seated at the right hand of the Father. And Christ's glory will be especially revealed at his second coming. He spoke of this often, that the Son of Man, he would say, the Son of Man is referring to himself, is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So now, like we were buried with Christ in his death, we, were, we died with Christ in his death, we are united with him in his death, and we are raised with Christ, we are united with him in his resurrection. So too, the scripture speaks about our being united with him in his glorification. We shall be glorified with Christ. Look at verse 4. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, Jesus' prayer in John 17, and he says, And the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Isn't this wonderful? Look at the work, when you could look at the, the, the layout of the entire work of Jesus Christ, and he identifies with us. And then through faith, he unites us to him. And it doesn't stop at any level along that entire sequence. That through faith in Christ, we died with him in his death. That through faith in Christ, we are raised with him in his life. And that through faith in Christ, we, will, we are will be glorified with him when he returns. 
So what do we do in the meantime? The, the Apostle Paul says, well, then seek these things. Here, your pursuit should be that realm where he is. Notice verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. And our preoccupation should be with that realm above. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on earthly things. Isn't that amazing? So let me end with a, a quote here from Joel Beakey. Speaking about this union with Christ, to close. Since union with Christ is the heart of salvation, that we must examine ourselves. Okay, this is... We must examine ourselves to see if we are truly united to him. True religion, and he's not meaning like, he's talking about faith here. True religion is not merely a matter of true beliefs, as important as those are, or moral behavior, as essential as that is, or participation in the ordinances of worship, as essential as those are. It is a supernatural relationship with Jesus Christ such that you are in him and he is in you. So the question here to two groups here. Are you in union with Jesus Christ? Again, Beaky. Do you belong to him? If you answer in the negative, then you are in desperate condition. Regardless of how religious or moral you may, may be, you are lost and dead in your sins. And you have an enemy, you are an enemy of God and under God's wrath and without hope in the world. Or as Calvin put it this way, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. But Beaky goes on, however, even now, so if this is you and he's saying, if you answer in the negative, then you're in a desperate condition. You're in a, you're in a bad state. This is not to condemn. This is to warn and to encourage. He continues. He says, however, even now, God in his mercy is patiently calling you to come to his son. Why will you die? God in his mercy he says, come, there is a banquet prepared in Christ for sinners without cost to you because the price has been paid. By grace, come and eat. By a spirit-worked faith, receive Christ and you will discover that you have been born again by God's sovereign grace to a living hope and Christ is yours forever. If that's what you want or need now, whether you are, were an unbeliever or maybe you've been backslidden and you go, that's what I want. I feel as though I'm just dead and I need to have my dead person truly put to, to death and that I need to be made alive in Christ. Then come to receive that offer that he gives.
and be united with Christ in his death and be united with Christ in his resurrection through faith and be united with Christ in his glory. But to the believer, Beeky says, if you are in Christ, then you have so much for which to be grateful. The thought that Christ has united himself so very closely to Christians should overwhelm us with his love for us. God overcame our enmity and resistance against him and gave us the spirit of faith so that we can take hold of him who has taken hold of us. One of my favorite old dead theologians, Wilhelmus Abrakel. I just like saying his name, you know. He said that believers should meditate on, quote, the unsearchable grace and goodness of God that such wretched and sinful men may also may be so intimately united with the Son of God. And he says that such meditations, quote, will most wondrously set the heart aflame with love. Are your hearts aflame with love this morning? When you ponder that in your wretched condition, through no work of your own, through faith in Christ, that you are united with him in a death like his, and you will be raised in new life with a resurrection like, like his, and that you will be glorified with a glorification like his. Beaky continues, our mouths should be full of songs of praise that the Almighty Lord would join himself to such as us. Our hearts should swell with desire to enjoy intimate fellowship with the God who has so desired to be near to us. Amen.